Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome back to the UK main stage at the 37th annual Kentucky Book Fair. It's my pleasure to introduce University of Kentucky Associate Dean, the Graduate School, Professor Morris Grubbs, sitting in the middle, who will be leading our noontime discussion with Kentucky's own Wendell Berry and the National Endowment of the Humanities Chair, John Parrish Petey. Professor Grubbs, the stage is yours. Thank you very much. So good afternoon. Uh, thank you for joining us for, the, for this hour-long conversation between Wendell Berry and John Parrish Petey. Uh, as you heard, I'm Morris Grubbs, an assistant dean in the graduate school at the University of Kentucky and also uh, an alumnus of the uh, Kentucky Humanities Board of Directors. So we'll get right to it. We have about 50 minutes, so we want to make sure that we have plenty of time. I'll introduce our two guests, although one needs very little introduction. To my right, uh, a native of Brandon, Mississippi, John Parrish Petey is chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities, affectionately known as the NEH. His previous positions include publisher of the Virginia Quarterly Review at the University of Virginia, literature grants director at the National Endowment for the Arts, or NEA, director of the NEA's Operation Homecoming, a program subtitled Writing the Wartime Experience, director of the NEA's Big Read program, director of communications at Millsaps College, and editor at Mercer University Press with a focus on the humanities and Southern culture. In an interview following his appointment as NEH chair published earlier this year in Humanities Magazine, uh, the magazine of the NEH, Mr. Petey reflects on his childhood in small town Mississippi. At school, he says, I played varsity football and ran track. I would write poetry at night. I fell in love with drawing and then writing in books. My passion for the outdoors informed my high school reading. Dickinson, Steinbeck, Wendell Berry, Sand County Almanac, John Muir, James Agee, Teddy Roosevelt. Later in the interview, when asked to identify a book important in his life, Mr. Petey pointed to All the King's Men, the great novel by Kentuckian Robert Penn Warren, a novel that many Kentuckians have been reading and rereading and discussing this year, thanks to the efforts of Kentucky Humanities. That interview and its salute to two great native literary sons of Kentucky sealed Mr. Petey's fate to be a guest today at the Kentucky Book Fair. So please welcome Chairman Petey. Wendell Berry needs no introduction at the Kentucky Book Fair, but since this is a formal occasion, I'll provide a short one. Mr. Berry is a Henry County farmer, an advocate for small farmers, rural communities, and land-conserving economies, a cultural critic, an essayist, novelist, short story writer, and poet. Among his many awards is the 2010 National Humanities Medal, given for service, expanding our understanding of the world. 
In 2012, Mr. Berry was chosen by the NEH to deliver the annual Jefferson Lecture in Washington, D.C., the highest honor the federal government bestows for distinguished intellectual achievement in the humanities. Earlier this year, Mr. Berry's Port William novels and stories from the Civil War to World War II, edited by Jack Shoemaker, was published by the prestigious Library of America, a nonprofit publisher whose mission is to help the public appreciate the illustrious achievements of the nation's writers and to ensure that this writing continues to have a presence and prominence in our culture and around the world. Next April, the Library of America will issue a two-volume set of Mr. Berry's nonfiction titled What I Stand On, the Collected Essays, 1969 to 2017. I first met Mr. Berry when I enrolled in one of his graduate courses 30 years ago. Please welcome Wendell Berry. I feel like I may be graded on this presentation. So Chairman Petey, uh, Mr. Berry, thank you for spending this hour, this 50 minutes actually with us. Uh, let's begin on, on common ground by having you share some thoughts on the power of reading and writing, the theme that's brought all of us out to the Kentucky Horse Park today. So here in this room we have an audience of readers who know that some books have the power to free us, to liberate us from the many things that confine us, limit us. The humanities free us by expanding our imagination and enlarging our capacity to understand the world and one another. I was wondering if you could share with us a literary work, uh, long or short, current or past, that's made a difference to you and talk a little about how it continues to shape you and the work you do. Chairman Petey, do you want to do you want to start? Uh, well, first I want to say it's a delight to be here, and, and I'm happy to um, talk to that. I, I want to quickly, though, um, acknowledge the Kentucky Humanities and and to thank them for being here, and maybe say just for a moment what the NEH is, what we do. Um, we are the federal agency, which is say we do through your funds, uh, great work across the nation. So uh, more than $10.7 million in this state uh, through our State Humanities Council and direct grants to your universities, your museums. And so it's, it's an honor to be here, here. And what Bill Goodman and his team does is remarkable. And can we just take a moment to acknowledge the State Humanities Council and the festival planners? Thank you. Thank you. I think, as, as you alluded to, a, a transformative book for me was certainly All the King's Men. Uh, I went to Vanderbilt. Um, I was living near the Dorn that had been torn down that my father lived in there, uh, near uh, where Robert Penn Warren's dorm had been, which has also been torn down, uh, where my, my daughter's in the audience as a freshman there. And, uh, and uh, have a great work of literature that um, was going through some of the questions I had. Um, what are our responsibilities to our society? Well, um, I've spent a lot of years in Washington now, uh, 10 years as an appointee of the two endowments. And so naturally, uh, the interplay of society, of, of power, of authority, um, I was trying to say true to yourself, those, those are evergreen things. And, 
And at, at 50 years of age, it, it speaks to me one way. It spoke to me in a different way at, at age 20. So I might leave it there. I think there are other books as a young person. Steinbeck's The Pearl just woke me up to the idea of, of fate, of, of greed, and, and the corrosive impact of greed. There, I think at any number of times, books made me a, a more complete person. Well, I think that the great service to us of the great books is that they give us permission to take serious things seriously. I think that's what we get from the Bible, uh, from Dante, from Shakespeare, and on down to the good contemporary writers. But also because if, if they are well written, um, they also give us permission to be delighted with delightful things. And, and, and I may add to that, that word delight is essential. I spent a lot of my life in, in universities and publishing, and, and I love it, and I love scholarship. I know we're going to have a, a conversation about all the King's Men here from a scholarly point of view. But we need to remind our young readers that literature is about delight. Art is about delight. It is, it is about uh, keeping the imagination alive. And I think sometimes at the university we spend so much time dissecting the works instead of reminding just the sheer pleasure of it. And I'll say more practically, if, if one wants a practical reason, when the National Endowment for the Arts commissioned a formal study from the Census Bureau about reading habits, those individuals that read a work of literature in the course of a year were more likely to volunteer, were more likely to vote, were more likely to be engaged in their community. And I think when you look at the great gift of Wendell Berry's career, a lot of it is about talking about community. And it's amazing how many times books are present, reading is present in that community. When John was thinking, I wrote a note to myself. It says, thanks. And of course, I didn't read it because I don't take what I write all that seriously. But I do think uh, the, uh, the Kentucky Humanities Council for the privilege of taking part in this conversation and the National Endowment. And from these also we get a permission, I think. Uh, if the government is taking the humanities seriously, maybe we ought to. And uh, in self-defense maybe, but <laughs> nevertheless, I'm grateful. Well, circling back to your list of writers that you mentioned in the interview, I'll put you on the spot and ask you, can you tell us why you, what, what was, what did Wendell Berry's work mean to you at that time? Oh, don't do that. <laughs> well, uh, a couple of things. Uh, I could almost say Berry's plural. There's the novelist. There's the essayist. There are times when I wanted to learn the craft of essay writing, then I looked at it as an instruction manual, a free class, if you will. How do you develop a lead? How do you keep someone engaged? How do you move the conversation along? When do you decide to be lyrical? When do you decide to be compressed? So there's a lot just to learn about the craft in this work. 
uh, I'm, uh, my, my wife's a minister. She actually graduated from Southern Baptist Seminary um, uh, in the 80s. And so I came at the Sabbath poems trying to learn about the craft of poetry. She came at them as an act of devotion. Uh, so, uh, and, and also what I really like in the tradition of Southern literature that Wendell Berry's in is that great care for words. One of the things I, I worry about if, if I go all across this country in this job, I think I've been to 23 states in the last year, my, my staff recently told me, but it's the same restaurants everywhere, you know, the same clothing stores, and that can bleed over to our literature. The, the uh, newscasters all more or less sound the same, regional dialect has been lost. What I love is the turn of phrase in his work. Um, I was reading one of the short stories in the new Library of America collection. He had just a, uh, wasn't any lingering on this phrase at all, just a piece of conversation. And it said, um, um, something gone, nothing lost. That's a world, isn't it? And what the anchor of his literature is, particularly when you think about the environment, is it's all about what is lost. And, and I thought that was interesting that somebody, a character is making peace with something that had come to pass, in this case, uh, 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 you know, a death, and, and saying something gone, nothing lost. And, uh, and uh, we need to slow down as readers with a level of intentionality. Uh, and I think that's because you have a novelist with a poet's gift that his prose makes us slow down and pay attention to phrases. So we've, we've mentioned different genres from nonfiction to novels, poetry. What is it about fiction that, that is so powerful? I mean, that nonfiction cannot do. I'll give you a quick example of a short story by Isabel Yende, for example. She has a story called End of Clay We Are Created. It's about a little girl who's trapped in a mudslide and her feet are trapped, but her head is above the mud. Uh, a reporter finds her and is first on the scene and spends the last days and hours with her, but he's shaken to the core by just spending that time with her, getting to know her. It's an intimate experience. Uh, he's shaken, we're shaken as readers by it, but the rest of the world can only see that through the screen, through the camera lens, and can only rely on the media. And to me, that's similar to nonfiction as opposed to fiction. So what is it that fiction can do that nonfiction cannot? Either one of you. The root meaning of fiction is to put in order. And um, what fiction can do that nonfiction can't is complete the story by imagination. I don't think I've ever known a real story that was complete, that I knew all about. Uh, but I've taken real stories and completed them by imagining the connections, um, imagining uh, the feelings of people, and um, filling it out, making it full, 
making it whole. That's what fiction does. It's the way uh, of completing the order of reality. I, I completely agree. I think um, Emily Dickinson said something about uh, truth, and, and she said essentially, you know, tell the truth, but tell it slant. And what she means is some truths, the difference between truth and fact sometimes, right? And sometimes you cannot come at everything directly. I, I gave a speech uh, in New Orleans uh, this past Saturday, I guess it was, and um, I was talking about Kurt Vonnegut's novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. And in Slaughterhouse, uh, Vonnegut was uh, served in World War II. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. He was, he was captured. He was brought to Dresden. Uh, the POWs were kept in subterranean uh, slaughterhouses, the horse slaughterhouses, and, um, and were quite they had difficult work. Um, that turned out to keep them alive. The Allies uh, uh, firebombed Dresden. Dresden was both a civilian and in, in industrial site. Um, and so he survived, as did uh, most of the uh, GIs, because they were underneath the ground. When he went to tell this story, he, wrote the, he published the book in 1969 in the height of the Vietnam War, he could have told that. That's an extraordinary thing. That we had more than the Brits and the Americans had more than 1,300 bombers in that run. That's the magnitude of it. That story alone is enough, as a matter of fact, to tell it. He did not choose to tell it that way. He said his character came unstuck in time, and so he told the story in reverse: that the ground spit up these bombs, these dangerous things, and that. Planes had holes in them, but then the German artillery shot pieces of metal into the planes and made the planes whole. And then the planes opened up their, do their, their doors and carried these dangerous things backwards through the sky, back toward England. And then they were dismantled, and then they were given to factories. He made a point of the women in the factories would then dismantle it into the minerals, and then they would drop the minerals back into the earth. And that that was the experience of Dresden. And as, as a combat veteran, as somebody who was dealing undoubtedly with his own PTSD, he decided the only way he could get to the horror of war was to, to do it through fiction, to do it in a way that was unimaginable to most of us. And yet, I think if you read that passage or field report of the firebombing of Dresden, you will tell me the work of fiction connected, gave you a sense uh, of, of the magnitude of what was done there in a way that a mere report um, is not capable of doing. So I think uh, fiction has great uh, meaning, great importance as through all of the humanities. And at the same time, I would say to fiction writers, that means you carry a responsibility. And I don't think we always say that. It, you carry a responsibility. Anybody's experience uh, and it's very clear in writing about military uh, things, the experience of any individual soldier or combatant would be fragmentary. So the imagination is invoked to make it whole, 
And moreover, uh, sympathy moves by imagination. And so the enormity of the damage becomes realizable by sympathy, which is enlivened by imagination. Imagination also sees the eternal in time. And so there's another dimension of significance that's given by imagination. Imagination seems to be a much better word than empathy. We hear empathy a lot, but imagination seems to capture a little bit more. Of what well, empathy's gotten to be a, a, a very common word, very overworked, and it always is uh, uttered with the implication that the, the utterer is the man or the person with the empathy. Um, usually it's empathy for people who agree with you, and so I would prefer imagination. Let's return to delight that you mentioned, but more in a context of writing as opposed to reading. So you've said that you have farmed as a writer and written as a farmer. Uh, what, I, what I think you mean in part is that both come from a deep well of affection and devotion. Both require discipline. Uh, both require learning from mistakes. Both lead to a deep appreciation of mystery. Uh, and there is hard work and enduring pleasure to writing and farming. You've, you've written much about the art and craft of farming, but you've written far less about the art and craft of writing. So I'm just wondering if you could talk just a little about the pleasure you find in writing. Lord knows what I meant by what, I, what you <laughs> quoted there, but it just sounds very good. It sounds as if I knew what I was talking about. Maybe I did. The pleasure. Uh, one of the best things Robert Frost ever said that, uh, was that when somebody read a poem of his, they should get a sense of what a hell of a good time he had writing it. And um, my own ability to take my work seriously really depends upon my, the pleasure I've had in it all these years not pleasure every day, and sometimes it's been enormously difficult. Um, but I've been interested in it because I've taken pleasure in it. The um, re re relation of uh, farming to writing, uh, for someone who's done both all his life, uh, is that uh, they relate as art, and to do them well requires, of course, attention to detail, knowing how the instruction of mentors and teachers and exemplars, and uh, that's not, the two arts are not that different. I learned to endure at work from farming from people who put me to work and had no pity for my weariness. Um, but I won't point, don't point the mic toward the speaker. Who's doing that? <laughs> you party. Very good, you're very subtle. 
my experience of the two arts makes me want to elevate farming to the same level as literature. I, one of my schools as a writer was the, uh, the, the work crews, were the work crews that I spent a lot of time with through most of my life who had a very good time talking to one another, who relieved the difficulty of the work by entertaining each other with things that they had to say, sometimes stories sometimes comments, sometimes memories, and so on. Chairman Feedy? Well, I um, also having uh, grown up in a small town and, uh, and at least in my youth a rural place, I, um, I also found that oral tradition of in the summers we would work for uh, um, farms for um, a friend of our father's and we all knew that we were going to college and certainly, you know, that farm work, you know, hoeing cotton or, or cleaning out chicken houses is a great motivator to go to college in my case. Um, but now I find the piece of being in the government and uh, it's a complicated job sometimes, uh, but we were on 20 acres near the Potomac and uh, uh, we have, um, so, I would hesitate to call myself a tree farmer because mostly I just watched for 20 years for hardwoods grow and, and that's my farming. But you know, you do fight the gypsy moths and the ash borers and you do, um, uh, you know, you do burn the, the woods for fuel. And I must say, it's a great and reflective place and it changes what I read. Um, when I was in a townhouse going on the metro to DC all the time, I would read one particular type of writing. I read very differently out in the woods um, you brought up the word delight, and it, it, it didn't occur to me the first time you mentioned it, but Robert Penn Warren, since we're here you've been talking about Robert Penn Warren's work uh, uh, with the Kentucky Humanities Council, he has a poem, uh, Tell Me a Story. I don't remember all of it, but the conclusion of it is, uh, tell me a story in this time and place of mania. Tell me a story of deep delight. And, uh, and, and I think that is to be found in the woods. And I think um, uh, the real gift of, of Mr. Berry is that you have nature writing in the Pilgrim at Tinker Tree tradition. You have environmental writing, which is a related but different matter. Um, uh, you know, in some ways, a call to arms that is not unlike the Vanderbilt Agrarians, the British distributionist, um, a connection but the NEH is certainly, in addition to, uh, to receiving the, uh, the uh, Humanities Medal from President Obama, is that he gave our Jefferson Lecture, which is the highest level of honor from the federal government in the field of the humanities. And to look at those conversations about what Alan Tate and others were talking about, about the agrarian movement in the 1930s, and of course in the 1950s, that continues in a different way through James Agee's writing. And really, if you bring it up to our time, we are here on the stage with, I think, uh, the most important voice about the land and the American South. Uh, yes, that's why my wife calls me Mr. Barry. <laughs> 
I'd like to add just one more thing to my previous answer. I think that farming puts art back to the wall in a way that literature can never do. Um, you can fake it in art. You can't fake your relationship to an animal. Uh, I think that art is what keeps farming from being a mess, a dangerous, wasteful, shameful, depressing mess. So let's, let's talk about the humanities and the survival of rural America. In your Jefferson lecture, it all turns on affection. Uh, you speak of this so beautifully. I mean, it's a beautiful tribute to those who've chosen to live and work in small rural communities. You, you argue throughout your work that rural life is often misunderstood or disregarded or unseen altogether by the centers of power. Why isn't the real story, the true story of rural America told more often by more people? Uh, and what's the role of the humanities I'll look to you for, for this and getting it told in ways that will make a positive difference. Either one. Start. Well, I, I'm going to cheat because I'm going to start by reading a quote uh, from your lecture. And I was going to say nice things about Morse unless he read this quote first, and then I was going to shun him. Uh, but that won't be necessary. Um, uh, Talking about his home place, or actually the phrase he uses, home neighborhood, uh, Wendell says, quote, I cannot identify myself to myself apart from it. I am fairly literally flesh of its flesh. And so I think we all want to be at home in the world and in our community. Uh, a lot of people take pride in their region or their state, maybe their town, but to say the ho my home neighborhood, such a very interesting phrase. And so I, I find that very powerful. Most of us would say, I can't identify myself to others without my place. I found it striking that you said, I cannot identify myself even to myself apart from it. When I uh, wrote that Jefferson lecture, uh, Trump had not been elected and the election of uh, President Trump was a revelation to me, not because of anything to do with him, uh, but with the, uh, the, the that election's revelation of this uh, divide between rural America and what Paul Krugman calls the real America. The, I felt, I've felt since then very much isolated, very much troubled, uh, because I am a rural American. I'm a rural American who lives in rural America. And I seem to know things and to worry about things that uh, you don't find worried about, for instance, in the New York Times. We're in the midst of an agricultural depression in rural America. Again, uh, the toxicity of the countryside is a very large issue. Nobody knows these things. Nobody talks about them. There was an article in the Times 
not very long ago that said glyphosate is now in breakfast cereal. Glyphosate is the chemical that they put, the effective chemical, in Roundup. The scientists have reported that it probably causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Well, people are feeding their children breakfast cereal that has poison in it, a carcinogen. Is this something, now you haven't, haven't seen any follow-up to that anywhere. People are content then to feed their children or to eat themselves a carcinogen for breakfast and accept that as, as uh, normal. Well, suppose we wanted to get glyphosate out of breakfast cereal. How do we do that? That's probably as complex as any question in existence because it's a question that the humanities are going to have to address just as much as the scientists, the agricultural experts, and the rest of them. Let me read you something. I'm reading from one of um, John Ruskin's books on economics. The book is called Munera Pulveris. But I'll make this uh, brief. Neither with respect to things useful or useless can man's estimate of them alter their nature. If he produce or make good and beautiful things, they will recreate him. Note the solemnity and weight of the word. If bad and ugly things, they will corrupt or break in pieces, that is, in the exact degree of their power, kill him. Of all that he has labored for, the eternal law of heaven and earth measures out to him for reward to the utmost atom, that part which he ought to have labored for and withdraws from him or enforces on him, it may be, inexorably, that part which he ought not to have labored for. Nature asks of him calmly and inevitably what have you found or formed, the right thing or the wrong? By the right thing you shall live, by the wrong you shall die. The world is not to be cheated of a grain. Not so much of a breath of its air can be drawn surreptitiously. For every piece of wise work done, so much life is granted. For every piece of wicked work, so much death is allotted. That's not a scientist or an ecologist talking. I don't know. Uh, it's not an economist either. Would you class Ruskin as a humanist? Well, he was a human. He was trying to be as fully a human as he could, and that's why he he was interested in economy. But th that's a, from a while back. 
Who's saying it so urgently now? I might take a pause here and say that um, I think one of the things we are struggling with across the country is that, uh, you know, the phrase nature abhors a vacuum. When you have, uh, when you say there, there are no, there's no knowledge that you need to have. There's no, you, you can get by without the humanities. You can get by with it, any number of the things that we've had in civilization for a, a, a millennia. And the answer is you can't. You just can't. Uh, uh, Jefferson said around 1816, it was a letter, he said, uh, and I believe I had this phrasing right, a nation that expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization expects what never was and will never be. And, and I think if you want to know why our agency exists, why we have 50 states and six territorial partners that we fund, uh, it's because we're committed to being in a state of civilization, that we want an informed populace in this country. And there is, thank you. And, and there are no known examples of a society surviving without it in the way that you want to be. There is no democratic societies that have been sustained separate from the grounding that we know to be the humanities, whether that's ethics, whether that's uh, literature, an understanding of history, jurisprudence, political science, and all the humanistic studies. And so I, I think some of the things that, that we're talking about is yes, about the life of the mind, uh, but it's also in some ways our responsibility to the next generation. We wanna leave for them the capacity to have meaningful, fulfilling, uh, informed lives. And I don't see how you do that separate from the humanities. Now, sometimes local budgets, local priorities may be different. Uh, and it's not the humanities versus the sciences. It's, it's not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and. But, um, um, but I would be fearful of a day, for example, where those involved in artificial intelligence had no one who was trained in ethics. In the same way that when hospital boards have a review about a chemical trial or a medical procedure, there's a reason they have ethical boards. They have counselors, they have ministers, they have any number of people that can bring some vision to it that is beyond the realm of mere technology. Why isn't science a humanity except because of the academic departmentalization of the two? I might have, yeah. So some of that breaks down where natural science and natural laws separated. Uh, but when we think of our great thinkers, um, Newton had both of them invested in them, any number of, of great philosophers did. Einstein is, is a brilliant on how to conduct one's life in terms of a philosophy, um, as, as any number of others. Uh, I, I do think those silos that we have in the academy carry out in ways that, um, that are unnecessary. I, I spent eight years at the National Endowment for the Arts and now two years at the Humanities Endowment. And I don't believe these 
topics in my own life. I'm not saying today I'm going to go have a humanities experience. Today I'm going to have a, uh, an arts experience. I'm going to have a cultural experience or an intellectual experience or experience as a reader. So I think some of those labors are, uh, some of those things are unnecessary academic separations. And the people that most engage me as a reader uh, do not feel boxed in by those kind of boundaries. Our great historian, Thomas Clark, said that Kentuckians had never uh, addressed the problems of education with the idea of giving Kentuckians an intellectual competence for dealing with Kentucky's problems. And uh, that statement interests me because it addresses both science and the humanities uh, and and uh, we it's an uh, it's a convergence that has not been addressed or dealt with anywhere in education so far as I know in that is formal education I, I will say I'm spending a lot of time meeting with college presidents researchers corporations and and um, I think everybody feels at a certain level we went too far we went so far in the sciences uh, we, we got nervous about our, our rightfully nervous about the amount of student loan debt our children have and that they need to immediately be able to pay it off. And the conversation about the humanities, it's not about what are you going to do the 18 months after you're in school, but what kind of life do you want? What kind of career do you want? And, and even when I'm talking with people at MIT or at Stanford, uh, they are talking about they want to have fully rounded graduates, and that means, for example, that the sciences are, are not a sufficient uh, training ground. And the quick, very quick example I'll give you is that we're looking at self-driving cars in America, and this example I don't think is unique to me, but it's one I've used. Uh, I'm the self-driving car, and I'm going in that direction. A ball goes out in front of me, the computer program and said you can hit the ball. Now the ball, the soccer ball came out, now there's a seven-year-old girl chasing it. Uh, the computer says you cannot hit the seven-year-old girl, deviate into oncoming traffic, but there's no cars there. So deviate. Uh, now the same scenario, the ball, the girl, but there's a car coming at 10 miles an hour. Now the programmer's not sure what to do, but they're probably gonna allow you to hit the car at 10 miles an hour. Same scenario, now that car's at 50 miles an hour. You need an ethicist, you need a humanist in the room because somebody's got to decide if you hit that car at 50 miles an hour and they're not wearing seat belts, then that's under the law possibly an act of manslaughter because you programmed it to do that. But we all know what's going to happen with the young child. You do not want, when you program that, when you program that, when you sit down and run the numbers of what's going to happen legally at the end of this, you do not want every single person in the room to have spent their life in coding and engineering and computer science in the absence of the training that we've had from the ancient Greeks for it. I don't know in those scenarios where you decide what lane to stay in, but I know that the decision makers need to have a humanist in the room because ultimately you need a human answer. Let's shift the conversation a little bit toward the public humanities. 
Uh, and I, I wanted to mention just a, a good example of the public humanities here in Kentucky. Embarking on its fourth year, uh, the Berry Center's Agrarian Literary League generates and inspires readers throughout Henry County and beyond. As stated in its mission, the Agrarian Literary League brings humanities programming to rural communities, fosters the preservation of local histories through dialogue and storytelling, strengthens pride and stewardship of place, and conserves the unique culture found in rural places. So my question is, why, why is this work so vital? Uh, and, and why isn't this work being done through our school systems, through colleges and universities? Big, a big broad question, but what, what is it, how has that impacted Henry County? And what else is going on through the NEH that serves rural populations? Well, isn't this, a, again, a, a, first of all, an issue of how to have a public occasion that, that uh, gives people pleasure? Uh, the other, um, is a, uh, this, this is another instance of permission giving, I think, of saying to the public, well, it's all right to be interested in these things. Well, at the national level, um, particularly with our state partners, each state has tried to tap into the identity of their state. So for example, in Nebraska and Omaha, they'll have a large program like this, but in the small towns, and indeed they would use the word uh, hamlets, uh, they use the Chautauqua. And I saw out there, uh, y'all know the Chautauqua system where you have a, somebody recreates a historical character. And I was on the Eastern shores of Maryland where Frederick Douglass uh, was born into slavery in that area and they had historical reenactor, re you know, of course, to embody him. And, uh, and again, there's a list of any number of, of, of Kentucky tie-ins there. And so what you want to do is match your programming to the, to the community. And so I don't think that happens with deciding at the state level or certainly not at the federal level and then saying this is the only options you have. Um, and it's... And it's listening, and by the way, it's knowing that it's not a monolithic audience, that, uh, that I'm talking with people my age and older about books, I'm talking to their children about um, virtual reality experiences. I, I like Thoreau and Walden, I, I like books on paper, but um, I'm, I'm glad we funded Walden a game. This is an incredible immersive experience. And look, I'll be honest, I get, we get beat up a little bit in the press. Oh, you're spending money on video games. And, and there's no nuance in that. Well, just as we know the difference between uh, a bestseller beach book, okay, you know, versus uh, the deep kind of books we've talked about here, well, there's that range in, in video games too. And so uh, that's the other part is not to talk about there's one rural audience. Um, that's that's uh, the kind of assumptions we need to get away from. I don't know that we always have the budgets to, to have, uh, a, you know, a multi-tiered uh, content or answer, but um, but it does start with understanding that, that none of these groups are monolithic. We may be now at the beginning of a long effort 
to um, make our home countrysides uh, cultural landscapes. When the English broke into Australia in 1788, the Aborigines had been living there for 35,000 years. And we now know, as the English didn't know with their discovery of that continent, we now know that that continent was managed by many nations of Aborigines, each nation having its own language and each one adapted ecologically to its place so that it could last indefinitely. But this was not just a managed landscape, it was a storied landscape, a story that reminded people of all that had happened in it. This is, I was born to some extent in a cultural landscape um, and I heard the stories of what had happened in it. This is a, a very recent development, but I grew up among people who knew what had happened in certain places and would be reminded of those places to tell the stories. In my lifetime, that's nearly disappeared. It's still a cultural landscape to me, uh, but um, at my age, I'm one of a, uh, of a, of a remnant. So we, this is something that has to be begun again. Not fashionable, not a fashionable thing to do, but beginning again is not a bad idea. Just got the five minute mark five minutes ago, so we will wrap it up. But thank you, Mr. Berry, Chairman Petey, for this great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.